0: So uh, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker this morning. Um, Our teacher, his name is Bob Hyatt, and he comes from Portland, Oregon. Bob is a dear friend of mine, and I get the opportunity uh, to serve alongside of Bob on staff with the Ecclesia Network. And many of you know uh, we've been a part of the Ecclesia Network since our inception almost 10 years ago as a church. I met Bob shortly after that, and we've become... Not only good friends, but Bob and I have co-written two books together. So many of you have heard about the other half of some of these books. So it's really fun to have Bob here. He's been uh, a, a dear friend. I've spent several times out in Portland on his, in his guest room, just as he's spent in our guest room. And uh, one of the things I love about Bob is when it comes to spiritual formation, there are few people I know that do it better than Bob. And uh, Bob led a training yesterday for many of our Ecclesia churches. And uh, I just love his heart for that. He's trained as a coach and as a spiritual director. He planted the evergreen community in Portland 13 years ago and uh, preached there in June on a trip out there. And uh, so, so grateful for Bob uh, and his willingness to, to come and be with us this weekend. He catches a flight home. Uh, this afternoon. Uh, but as he comes, let me just pray briefly for Bob as well. So God, thank you for Bob. Thank you for uh, Amy and their and their three kids. And we're so grateful that he could be with us here. Thank you that our church is a part of the Ecclesia Network. And Lord, we just bless him and pray for him um, as he teaches this morning. And we pray that... Um, What you've given to him, he would steward well in communicating to us. And so thank you that we can share community to community. I can be there in June, and he can be here in October, and uh, that we're part of something larger than ourselves. So we pray a blessing over Evergreen. We pray a blessing over his role with Ecclesia, and we pray a blessing over him this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Oh, that's good. Thank you, and uh, thank you to Doug and to Ben and Jr. the elders, and the whole uh, Renew community for having me here. It's I, I want to extend greetings to you from the Ecclesia Network, from your sister churches there, and from uh, particularly our church Evergreen in Portland, as uh, Jr. mentioned. If you guys, people always ask me when I come to different places about Portlandia. Is it really like that? You know, and I tell them uh, Portlandia is barely satire. That's the thing. <laughs> It's like the truth plus 10%, and that's Portlandia. Um, I know you guys are in a a season of transition, and even though this isn't the main thing that we'll be talking about today, I did want to encourage you with something. JR and I were talking uh, a couple nights ago um, about how rare it is that people really give feedback to, uh, at least the positive kind, to pastors. Uh, when we mess up, which we often do, because we're human beings, we hear about it, but I've had to learn, at least in my pastoral ministry career, that no feedback is usually a form of positive feedback, that when nobody's saying anything, that means everything's going all right, and I have just had to kind of be content with that. Um, I just want to encourage you during this time of, of, of change and transition and growth in your community to be intentional about doing that differently. Uh, As your leaders, as your pastors, as your elders, as your house church leaders, as others, lead through a time of transition. Be generous with your positive feedback. And let them know when you feel like something has gone well or something was done, handled rightly. Tell them when you had a a light bulb moment during a sermon or during house church or other discussion times. Let them know that you appreciate the work that they do on behalf of the the whole community. Ministry, honestly, can be lonely. And encouraging those who do it is a way of in, not only investing in them, but investing in your whole community. So, yeah? Yes? All right. Well, a couple of years ago, it's great to see your kids dedicated. Um, I've got three children, and, and a couple of years ago, uh, I, had, I, I got to take a quick trip to Florida to see my mom, who was ill at the time, and I brought along my then nine-year-old daughter, Janie, and it was really nice to get to spend some one-on-one daddy-daughter time with her, but Portland, Portland to Florida is basically a day-long ordeal. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long trip each way, so I made sure to bring some entertainment. I had an old phone, and I loaded it up with movies and, and shows, which was really silly because I only actually needed one movie. That was it, Annie. You guys see the new version of that? Uh, no? Really? Yeah, all right. Well, some of you. All you need to know is it's, it's about the little orphan girl, Annie. And Janie watched that like two times on the way to Florida. She watched it two or three times while we were in Florida. She watched it two times on the way home from Florida. Over the next few weeks for months, she was obsessed with that movie. That was all she would watch was Annie over and over and over again. And some of you have kids and all of you have been kids. I'm assuming. Um, so, some of you get that on the way home. Um, what do you think? And this is, a, this is a non-rhetorical question. I'd love to hear you on this. Why do kids love to watch the same thing over and over and over again? What do you think? What? Comfort. Yeah. What, what, how so? They know what's coming. Yeah. That's good. Other ideas? Participation—that's good. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They say the lines, they sing the songs, they enter into the story. That's really good. Yeah. What else? Why do they like to watch the same thing over and over? Hmm. Sorry. One more time. Oh, humor. They—they—they they, they like to. They get the jokes and they like to laugh at them again and again and again. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, yeah. I, I read something similar to, to some of what you guys have, have pointed out, just that basically one of the reasons is is that when you are small and so little in your life is under your control, it's a way of having a sense of comfort, a sense of control when you know how the story is going to end. It's, it, that story, regardless of the ups and downs and the danger that the hero might be in, it's a safe story for you because you know it turns out okay in the end. There's power in stories, and we all know that. That's why we love them so much. They help us make sense of the world. They help us refine and redefine our worldview, and they teach us about ourselves and others, even and maybe especially stories where we know The ending. I I can't tell you how many times I read the Chronicles of Narnia growing up. Uh, I don't know. Do people still read that? I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great series. They were some of my favorite books and opened up to me a whole world of fantasy. And of course, it wasn't until I was older that I realized just how mm, theologically rich those books are and that that whole series is and how it paints a picture of all that is wrong in the world. And just who is going to set it right again. So if you guys have read or even seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this one scene where uh, Mr. Tumnus, a friend of the main characters, the children, has been captured and the children want to rescue him. And so they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Let me, I just want to read you a couple lines. It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good, you're trying of all people. But now that Oslin is on the move, Oh, yes, tell us about Oslin, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Oslin, asked Susan. Oslin, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know he's the king? He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at the moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. Is he? It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumness. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her own two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do. And more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Oslin comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes its mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. He's the king, I tell you. The rightful king coming to call his people to themselves and overthrow the powers of death and darkness. See, that's a a great story. One that we can read over and over again and even find ourselves in if we're paying attention. Because Lewis wasn't just writing a story, right? He was using a fantasy narrative to describe exactly what is happening in the real world. What God is doing in this world through the person of Jesus Christ. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he said... And I I think I have the quote up here, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. So what does a campaign of sabotage look like? If you have a Bible, open up, we're just going to read a, a brief passage from the book of Luke. Luke chapter 13. And pay attention as we read because I'm going to ask you what you hear Jesus saying. I'll ask for some of your feedback. Very familiar voices, or very familiar verses. Luke 13, 18 says, Then Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It's like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds make nests in its branches. He also asked, What else is the kingdom of God like? It's like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in, three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. What do you hear Jesus saying? I mean, what, what is he getting at with this? What do you think? Yeah, isn't it interesting that usually when we use those kinds of metaphors, it's like one rotten apple ruins the whole bunch. The metaphor usually runs the opposite direction. But Jesus is saying one little bit of good can do something amazing. What else? What is he saying? How does he describe this idea of kingdom? What's, What's he telling us about it? Yeah, it's growing, but it's going to take time. It's a process. It's slow. It's maybe surprisingly slow, you know? Maybe imperceptibly. What else? Anything else you notice? Anything else grab your attention? Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus uses small things. Interesting. One of the things that Jesus talked about, of all the things he talked about, the thing he talked about most was the kingdom of God. He talked about money, he talked about sexuality and God's view of how we should use our sexuality. He talked about prayer, about love for God, for neighbor. But there isn't anything that Jesus talked about more than the kingdom of God, this idea of kingdom. And yet many of us, we, we've got kind of a fuzzy ideas to what, that, what, what he might be getting at when he uses this language of kingdom. And part of the reason, I think, why we don't quite really have a clear uh, sense of what he's getting at is that I think too many of us, we don't see the Bible, we don't see Scripture as story, as a narrative. We tend to view it maybe as a rule book, a set of inspirational texts, you know, like somebody collected a bunch of fortune cookies or a bunch of tweets together, and we just kind of read down and pick one for the day, and that's good. And if we do view it as a story, we think it's about us, and we're the main characters. See, but it's not. I was raised in church, uh, like maybe some of you, and I thought for most of my life that the story of the Bible went something like this God made the world, and it was good, but we messed it up with sin. So God had to save us. So he sent Jesus to die in our place, pay the penalty for our sin, and if we believe in him, put our trust in him, we'll go to heaven when we die. The end. Now here's the thing. There's nothing overtly wrong with that story. There's no overt error in there. But it leaves a lot out. Some really important stuff. We could tell that story in a heck of a lot fewer words than this. Right? And that story is mostly about who? Us. But read the Bible carefully from cover to cover. Pay attention to the narrative. And the story goes something more like this. God creates a good creation in which are included people, men, women, who are meant to be his image bearers to represent him and govern over creation under him. But rather than reflect the image of God to one another and to creation, rather than being Godly, they try to become God like. And they listen to the lie that they can become as God and so usurp his role, his sovereignty. But God forgives the usurpers and makes a covenant with Abraham and a promise to bless the world through him and his descendants. And when those descendants are enslaved and oppressed, he acts decisively to judge the so-called king that enslaves them and sets them free. But still, at every turn, they break the covenant The people will not obey. There's a continuing series of rebellion against God's rule. And God tells them, I am your king. I am the only one you need. But they demand a human king. They want to be like the people around them. And God accommodates them. And he he chooses David. And he promises to bless the world through David's descendant. But like all of us, David is flawed. And the family seeds of lust and violence that he plants flower into a long line of kings who grow more and more evil as the years go by. And the people are exiled because of their disobedience. But the promises of God are remembered. And held on to by the people who longed to be set free from their oppression. Who longed to see God return to his rightful place as ruler. Until that day when a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, came on the scene and declared. These are the first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.15. He says, The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. And believe the good news. The good news was that the king, God himself, had returned in the person of Jesus and was establishing his kingdom. In Jesus, the kingdom of God had finally arrived and was subversively challenging the corrupted rule of human beings. The story of Scripture is the story of Jesus. And the story is that in Jesus, God now rules the world and is slowly extending that rule through people like you and me, heart by heart, life by life. And his kind of rule is qualitatively different than our empires, our politics, and their divisive, destructive, oppressive ways. His kind of rule is saving, rescuing, healing, atoning, forgiving, justifying, reconciling. And as we read the Gospels, especially, we see the subversive nature of nearly everything that Jesus does, up to and even including his death on the cross, which took what was meant to be a criminal's death in shame and disgrace and humiliation, and through the resurrection, turned it around to be the most glorious triumph ever. The moment when God broke in and declared that human power, human force Empire, death itself, all of it was bankrupt, impotent. In taking what was meant for shame and turning it to be the very instrument of our salvation, the salvation of any who want it, Jesus subverted the powers that be and declared that the kingdom of God had come. Finally, it was here. The the kingdom was present because the king was present. The king himself was there. Scripture is first and foremost the story of that, of God as king. And God is king and King Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior. He is all of those things. And he will be all those things in full display when the kingdom is fully established, when God sets all things right in a renewed, recreated creation where heaven and earth meet, where God will dwell with his renewed, redeemed, resurrected people. See, that is the story that alone makes sense of Jesus's choice of the word kingdom over and over and over again to explain what God is doing in this world. Otherwise, it makes no sense. No sense at all. See, when Jesus says kingdom, he's talking about God's reality, the real reality. That's repetitively redundant. I understand that. But Real reality. I feel like we need almost to uh, amplify that word reality, because so much of what we see that that is passes for reality. We understand it's not real. But when God is talking, describing something, He's talking about the real reality behind what we see, what we feel, not the world as we perceive it, which is hopelessly mired in death, in disease. But the world as it actually is, as it actually will be fully someday, not where we think history is going, but where it actually is going. The kingdom is the most real world. The world is revealed as belonging to God, invaded by God's grace, turning on the pivot of the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So listen, when we pray, God, may your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are taking part in what Lewis described as a campaign of sabotage against the current regime of death and disease and despair in this world. We are being subversives when we pray, God, may your kingdom come. We're asking God to exert his power in the world, to see his rule, his reign, flourish, his authority recognized. And because of that, because people recognize his rule, his reign, his authority, for there to be peace, for there to be justice, for right to prevail over might, for oppression and war to end, for people everywhere to see God as he is and switch their allegiance, switch it from sin, from self, from political saviors, false idols, whatever, to him. At Christmas, we sing or we hear those awesome words from Handel's Messiah. The kingdoms of our world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. All the kingdoms of this world, Russian, British, Kenyan, Venezuelan, Chinese, and dare I say it, even American, all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This new kingdom is already present, slowly growing. It's among us, spreading, slowly subverting the powers that be. And maybe that's why all over the world followers of Jesus are imprisoned for their faith because the dictators and the despots and the would-be kings recognize exactly what we mean when we say kingdom of God. And while we all want to, we, we all say that we want to see God's kingdom come, sometimes I wonder, because to paraphrase Eugene Peterson, have, has, has anyone heard of Eugene Peterson? Does he ever get mentioned around here at all? I'm just curious. Okay. Okay. Uh, To paraphrase him, in our context, when we say kingdom of God, no one gets scared. No one gets apprehensive. As if we had just announced that a revolution is taking place, a rebellion against the rebellion. See, when we say radical things like love, believe, peace, sin, and most of all, Jesus is Lord. Words that in other times and in other cultures cultures caused and still continue to cause martyrdoms. Most people in our context yawn. Why? Because they feel wrongly that King Jesus has about as much claim over their life as the King of Denmark or the Queen of England, which is to say precisely none. And apologies to anyone here who uh, might be a British citizen or Canadian, I I understand. See, but Jesus' earth-shaking claim, the kingdom of God is now present and growing, starting small, but getting ever larger like a tiny mustard seed growing into a great mighty tree. That claim defines the world that we live in. It shows us what the real reality is. We live in a world where Christ is is king and on the move. The darkness is not winning, regardless of what you see on CNN, what you read in the paper, how you feel about terrible tragedies that happen even right here in our own communities. There's a deeper truth behind it, a bigger arc to the story. And if Christ is King, everything, quite literally everything and everyone, has to be reimagined, reconfigured, reoriented in our minds, in our hearts, to a way of life that consists of obedient following of Jesus. And for many of you who are trying to do just that, you know it's not easy. It's not accomplished by hitting church every once in a while, by thinking about God occasionally, or just trying to be a slightly nicer version. Of yourself? No, it's a total renovation of our imaginations, our way of looking at things, what Jesus meant when he said, Repent. That's what's required, a complete change of our mind, of our worldview. And that's why those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, why we come together regularly, week after week, to worship, to listen, to pray. Because we are being introduced to the real world and being trained, again, paraphrasing Eugene, introduced to the real world and being trained to live in it. That's what we do. That's, that's how we are formed in our worship, in our attention to Scripture, in our listening to, the, to how the Spirit is speaking through one another. We are being fit and formed to lean into to live in, to lead others into this growing reality of the kingdom of God. We're rebelling against the rebellion, learning how to subvert the current regime, not with the tools that keep it strong, not with violence, politics, anger, hate, but with the subversive ways of Jesus. Love, sacrifice, service. And here's why it's so, so hard. Of all the kingdoms in this world, The kingdom of self is the one which is most heavily defended, right? While most people, even Christians, will give a nod to the kingdom of God and its values, they don't want it invading their personal turf, challenging their sovereignty. Even many people who say, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, have a hard time taking the crown off their own head. So what does this mean practically? If the kingdom story is the true story, and we know how that story ends, we've read the last two chapters, then we are summoned by it to surrender our pride Our desire to rule our own little kingdoms, to lay them before the one who died for us, who was buried, who was raised, and who is now exalted at the right hand of the Father as king, and will someday fully enact his kingdom and make all things new. If that's where this whole thing is going, I need to begin to live into that now. There's no waiting. We are to turn from our own rule to the rule of the king In the grace of this surrender, we are changed by the power of God's new creation spirit. We're made into citizens of that kingdom who look like, sound like, feel like the king. Very simply, this is not a story that we can enter into without surrendering. Why? Because if Jesus is the one and only, the true king, We must surrender to Jesus as the king and join him in what he is doing in this world. We don't get to make our own agendas and ask him to come and bless them. We figure out what he is doing and we follow. And second, as we surrender, we need to immerse ourselves in this kingdom story. Yes, we should all be aware of what's happening in our world, in our neighborhoods. Watch the news, read the paper as much as you can, as much as you can stand to. But if that's the only narrative that you read, that you think about, that you meditate on, you will most likely spend your days alternating between fear and anger. That will be the extent of your emotional life, if that's the narrative that you feed on day after day after day. Because I don't need to tell you there are some hard, terrible things happening in our country, in our world. We've all seen it. We feel it, and we need to pay attention alongside all of that to the deeper story of what's happening behind the scenes. Yes, this tragedy happened, but behind and around it, there's something amazing going on. Recognizing, joining in with the ways that God is on the move in the world, learning to be good spotters of what God is doing, seeing where he's at work, rescuing, redeeming, recreating. That and that alone will give us the hope, the strength that we need in the face of all the ugliness in the news. Listen, like a kid watching a movie over and over, taking comfort in knowing how the story ends, we need to reread and rehearse this scriptural narrative to ourselves over and over again, that we might learn to live in it and so live out of it. Renew community. Things may feel dark in this world right now, but spring is coming. Jesus is on the move, and it is he, not us, that will save this world that will save the people you are praying for, the people that you are working for, those places where you are working to see justice and peace and righteousness come. It is Jesus who will make the difference in Lansdale through you, but ultimately him. May we have the grace to join him in what he is doing. Adopt his subversive ways of working and pray daily, moment by moment, Lord, may your kingdom come. Amen? Amen. Let's do just that. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we long to see your kingdom come and we long for it to begin with us. We recognize, God, it's so much easier to proclaim you as king over the world than it is to proclaim you as king over our own hearts, our own lives. But we know that it starts small. It starts with us that the way you work is not by conquering nations, but by changing hearts one at a time. So, Lord, we pray this morning, may your kingdom come. May your will be done in my heart, in my life. May I learn to see you not just as the Savior, the King, but my Savior, my King. May I become an expert at spotting the divine in this world, seeing where you are alive and moving, rescuing, redeeming, bringing hope. And may I have the courage to join you there in the darkest of places, bringing the light of the good news of Jesus and what he is doing in this world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.